When Bill and Hillary learned they had won the presidency, their first reaction was to laugh. Hillary said a friend told them the victory was like the dog that keeps chasing the car and all of a sudden catches it. The final tally gave Texas billionaire Ross Perot 19%, the highest number for an independent candidate since Theodore Roosevelt ran on the bull moose ticket in 1912. George H.W. Bush came in at 37.4%. Clinton's 43% was the smallest total for a winner in eight decades. Most political analysts believe that without Perot, Bush would have won re-election. Bill Clinton and I were very fortunate to have a significant third-party candidate that drew virtually all of his votes from the Republican nominee, Al Gore said more than a decade later. At the time, Bill claimed the Perot voters as his own, viewing his victory as a mandate of 62% for an ambitious package of programs to be enacted in his first 100 days, FDR style. Viewed another way, almost six out of ten voters favored either Bush or Perot. The 43% for Clinton-Gore should have flashed a yellow rather than a green light for incremental rather than sweeping changes. Another cautionary signal was Bill's lack of coattails. The Democrats lost nine seats in the House while gaining one in the Senate. It should have been a time for bipartisan moderation for including Republicans and independents in the cabinet and pursuing the new democratic centrism of the campaign. But the Democrats had been out of the Oval Office for 12 long years, and they were in an expansive mood, eager to return to their liberal roots. In the 78-day interval between his election and his inauguration on January 20, 1993, virtually every decision Bill Clinton made had a direct impact on his first two years in office. After disguising Hillary's advisory role during the general campaign, Bill took pleasure in displaying it publicly. When asked if Hillary would attend cabinet meetings, Bill said, I hope so. She knows more about a lot of this stuff than most of us do. Hillary was precluded from holding any official position in the cabinet or on the West Wing staff by an anti-nepotism statute passed by Congress in 1967 after Bobby Kennedy's tenure as Attorney General, which prohibited a president's relative from serving in a post under his jurisdiction. Hillary's old friend Donna Shalala urged her to have a full-time job outside the White House, perhaps as a law professor at Georgetown University. But she said no, Shalala recalled. She was going to do a policy role, but she would be careful. She thought she was part of earning the presidency, and she wasn't about to not share the opportunity. Health care was not a logical choice for Hillary, the way education or welfare policy would have been. She had served as chairman of the Children's Defense Fund, a national advocacy group, and in Arkansas had run a commission to improve the public school system, which had been ranked among the worst in the nation. Her track record on health policy was limited to having helped her husband put together a program expanding medical care into rural areas of Arkansas and serving on the board of the Children's Hospital in Little Rock. Her knowledge, she later admitted, was that of a concerned citizen. But Hillary wanted to lead national health care reform. It would be the signature initiative of the first term, restructuring the entire health insurance system and extending coverage to the 37 million uninsured. 
It would allow Hillary to control the fate of $800 billion in annual spending, one-seventh of the economy. The Clintons were swinging for the fences, attempting to secure a place in the history books with a sweeping policy that would rival anything Roosevelt had done. Their stunning ambition was matched only by the naivete and impracticality of their expectations and strategies.